All right. Welcome, everyone, to the Earthquake Science Center's seminar series. This is the seminar for May 26th. As a reminder, please turn off your cameras and mute your microphones. All these functions are available through the menu bar that pops up when you hover over the bottom of your team's window. Live captioning is also available. Just click the three dots, AKA the more button and choose turn on live captions. Now, before we begin today, there are a few announcements. Next week's seminar is on June 2nd. The next all hands meeting is June 11th. Also, if you have not already, please fill out the future of work survey for the Department of the Interior. And also, it would be great if you could join us for Steve Hickman's send off on June 24th, which is happening at 4 to 7 p.m. that day. And tomorrow, our very own Austin Elliott will be giving a virtual public lecture called Where Earthquakes Hide in the Desert tomorrow night at 7 p.m. So if you can, it would be great if you could join that as well. Now, as a reminder, if you have any questions for today's speaker, you can either type them into chat or raise your hand. I will be monitoring the chat and reading the, que out the questions at the end. And if I call on you, feel free to unmute yourself and turn on your video when I call on you. Now, today our speaker is Maria Markvita from S Stanford University. Now I'll be handing it over to Ann Wine, who will be introducing them. Morning, everyone. It's my pleasure to introduce Maria Makvida. Dr. Maria Makvida received her PhD from Stanford University, where she was one of the first members of the Stanford Urban Resilience Institute. Her research and professional interests center around computational urban uh, computational techniques for regional seismic risk modeling, post-disaster economic impact analysis household disaster resilience, and application of machine learning techniques and risk quantification. Maria and I met around the economic impact analysis interests, as you'll see that her uh, research was involved the Hayward Fault in the, in the Bay Area. And so we um, shared notes on our economic analyses between her analysis and those we had performed for the Haywide analysis. And it was really exciting because she has taken a complementary point of view and looked at sort of the redistribution of income effects for uh, by income levels. So a very uh, current topic of interest. Um, she also works on the for the disaster risk management team at the World Bank, conducting risk assessments in Europe and Central Asia, and helping governments integrate risk information into strategic decision making. So, Maria, we look forward to hearing your talk. Thank you very much, Anne. Can you hear me? Excellent. So, uh, thank you, Anne, for inviting me, and I'm very honored to be here and to give this talk. Um, as Anne mentioned, I'm currently working at the World Bank and also teaching at Stanford. And I think during my PhD, I got to do a lot of analytical work, a lot of work that I think you will find um, aligned with what many of you do. Um, but also during that time, I collaborated with some of my colleagues at the World Bank to try to look at slightly um, different side uh, of all this, more focusing on how, how do we represent essentially the people who are most impacted by disasters in our analytics. 
And through that, you know, I now work uh, full time with the World Bank and I'm starting to really see how the work that we do plays quite a plays a big role in ultimately um, what happens and how programs get implemented um, in the context of the development world. So today I'd like to share with you some thinking that we've been doing over the last years of, around mostly disaster metrics and what they mean and what they represent um, and how our work really fits into that. So first I'd like to just to take a, um, are you able to see my screen? I just want to confirm. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, and just to mention that this work has been done in collaboration with um, quite a few people at both Stanford and the World Bank. So I would like to also acknowledge uh, their great contribution in this work. But taking um, a step back and looking a little bit why we're doing um, this work, and I think we're all aware that disasters have tremendous effect on the people around the world. And one note is that if we look at the trends of um, financial losses, um, they're actually going up and are expected to keep going up while our ability to cover and manage these losses still remains um, underdeveloped. We're only, if we look at it from an insurance point of view, around only 30% um, of losses are insured. And we're expecting these losses to increase with um, the climate change and urbanization. And so a lot of the countries are now actively thinking and putting it on their agenda on how do we prepare for that and how do we ensure that we're able to manage what comes in the future. So recognizing this um, several years ago now, six years ago, the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction was adopted by the member states of the UN. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of it and it's a non-binding agreement that essentially recognizes and guides the role of the state um, in disaster management. And this framework has actually been adopted by a lot of people and has, um, in the developing context, has been a big driver for a lot of countries to promote their risk management agenda. And kind of there's several priorities that this frame, very general framework outlines, but one of the key ones is understanding disaster risk. And so this is, I think, where a lot of our work comes now that a lot of governments are prioritizing understanding their risk. It's somewhere on their political um, agenda. They essentially need to be supported by risk analysis. And so this step becomes key uh, for our development uh, of disastrous management practice. But if you even look at this framework, there's several goals that are outlined um, and targets and some of them say uh, are increased availability of disaster risk information, and some of them are more talking about the consequences, such as reduced direct disaster economic loss. Then we will also see throughout these documents um, an emphasis on the protection of the poor and the vulnerable. So I think these, all of these sound very reasonable, but when we think about it from like an analytics point of view and how are we actually measuring, I think a lot of questions um, arise of what metrics do we use? How do we incorporate them? Because while reducing direct economic losses sounds 
um, like a very reasonable and important goal, by doing that, are we also achieving uh, the protection of the poor? And are we able to somehow track that? And let me give you an example. Um, if we think about, let's say, a levy um, that is protecting something and an investment into it, if your project might, might cost a million dollars, and then we do the risk analytics that we have all worked with and developed, and we find out that uh, you know, this project will protect on average 20 million, um, so save $20 million of losses per year. And then we have a project B that's the same investment and alternative, but it protects 5 million losses a year. So if we use kind of a more traditional cost-benefit analysis, we are, um, we would conclude that the first one is a better investment. It achieves our goal of reducing direct economic losses. But then if we take another dimension to it and say that um, the first project will be protecting a lot of like wealthier assets and the second project might be protecting a less wealthy population um, of a disadvantaged population, then we're starting to think, well, is the project A still more important and is it achieving our goals? And I think intuitively, we understand that project B would have a lot more impact on a lot more people and that disasters, in fact, for them, recovery will be a lot more difficult than, for example, for um, the picture project A. And in a lot of literature, we do understand that disasters have a disproportionate effect um, across different both demographic groups and socioeconomic groups. Um, and we don't have to go far to really see that in action. I mean, today, the COVID-19 impacts in the U.S. really, really show this uh, disparity. And it just time and time confirms that disasters um, exacerbate already existing disparities. Where on the left, um, if you look at the recent data about kind of wages and the changing number of jobs um, over the last year, we see that the the jobs that have the lowest average weekly wage tend to be also the ones that are the most affected in terms of numbers um, by the pandemic. And there's kind of a very clear co correlation between income and availability of jobs. Um, and same, you know, COVID in the beginning, we've heard this, uh, this term is the great equalizer and that we're all at risk. And of course, we all now know that this was, this was not true at all and that, um, different underrepresented minorities are a lot more impacted in both economic sense and health sense. So this is just confirming that these aspects of who's in need and who, how do we evaluate them? How do we support people who need it the most um, become very important? So this is really, a, has been the motivation for a lot of the work that uh, we've been undertaking. And we ask, uh, we ask questions such as how do we quantify impacts of disasters to reflect people's experience uh, more closely? And I think to do that, we need to recognize several factors. First, and now kind of if we think back to earthquakes, I think a lot of this will resonate. So disaster impacts extend beyond just repair costs and asset losses, I'll use those um, interchangeably throughout this presentation, that are caused by, caused by damage. And the disasters 
also affect jobs, livelihood, and well-being through many different mechanisms, but one of them being the destruction of kind of productive capital, things that allow us to go to work, to do our job. And the disasters also have a, a desperate effect and exacerbate um, inequity. So I think there is a need, and we all recognize this, um, to move beyond our current method of disaster risk analytics. And, and we can think about that a lot of the early work that was done, especially in the earthquake space on risk assessment, has been developed for and funded by in the insurance industry uh, because for them this was a very important question. So we have gotten relatively good at modeling losses, which makes sense, which is needed. But now I think our priorities um, are shifting, are evolving. And so how, how do we represent this and what are some of the ways in which we can think about it? So in today's talk, I will use Bay Area case study um, to show you some of these concepts that we have been thinking about and move from this idea of asset losses for a, for a given household to looking at their consumption losses, which is a slightly different idea. Um, and then the second part will really be looking at more equitable metrics, and I will introduce the idea of well-being losses. And finally, I will look at how, if we look at across different impact metrics, we can evaluate policy and what does that mean, looking at different impact metrics. So as I mentioned, um, we, we now will use our traditional or a lot of our current risk assessment as an input to kind of extend it to look at consumption losses of household. And consumption losses or consumption has really across many disciplines been used as a proxy for people's well-being. And it's, it's a way to describe the well-being of different households. And so we're trying to kind of take this idea and bring it to disaster risk analysis. But first, I'll start with a more uh, traditional view of disaster risk analysis, which considers hazard, exposure, and finally to quantify asset losses or uh, repair costs. And in our case, as Anne mentioned, uh, we were considering a large earthquake in the Bay Area, a magnitude 7.2 on the Hayward Fault. And we've described the Bay Area, the Bay Area's economy as represented by 15 kind of aggregate economic centers, and we've considered the population of 7 million people who live in here. And a lot of these figures also um, will be in 2016 dollars, just because the study was done several years ago. So we start with the hazard, and although I won't, feel free to ask me questions up, um, after, I won't dive too much into the details of the this part of the modeling. But we have used um, a scenario from the uh, USERF uh, earthquake rupture forecast um, with a ground, uh, Abrahamson ground motion model. We've captured the uncertainty uh, in the ground motions through a spatial correlation model. And to represent such uncertainty, we looked at um, a thousand simulations of this, um, of this event. And to do our first 
kind of level analysis of the damage and asset losses. We, we use the um, hazardous exposure database, which for the Bay Area considers 2.1 million buildings. And we've used uh, the fragility functions and simulated the damage states and the structural and non-structural losses, as well as repair time uh, for each of the buildings. And then over here, you can see kind of the average um, distribution of losses for this scenario. And so finally, we've arrived at um, quantification of our asset losses uh, with the mean loss being uh, 116 billion US dollars, um, and of course, uncertainty characterized in that loss. Um, and then a lot of the today's talk, I will be talking about households. So out of this whole risk analysis, we've also looked at specifically the losses in the housing sector, which of course make up the majority of the losses um, in, in the study. And again, as we would um, as we would expect, the distribution is centered around um, the rupture of the fault, and of course, considering the vulnerability of the building stock. So we've arrived here um, to this point, but I would argue that this this can kind of give us an idea of how households will be impacted, but it doesn't really tell us much about people's livelihood their jobs, their ability to recover or finance um, these losses. So there's still a lot of the missing pieces. And some of them are, as I mentioned, well, will people have income losses as a result of disruption to them, uh, to the economy? But then also, even if they might or might not have income losses, how does that liability to having to pay for their house or liability for losing their income, how will that actually impact how much they spend or their consumption losses? So in addition to income, we're now thinking about how does how do all these things fit together um, and impact your consumption? And so the in this model, we think about consumption in several ways. Well, first of all, by by having destruction to productive capital, so things that allow us to create income, which we then consume, we can, this can result in decreased productivity, job loss, um, but also depletion of savings if we need to kind of make up for that temporary loss and then liability for repair costs. All of these things can result in households decreasing their consumption. And these can come from liability of our personal assets, so the houses that we own, the assets that we use, whether it's um, transportation or utility, or kind of the assets that allow us to have our jobs and work. And so we've formulated um, a model, a fairly simple model for consumption, and you can find details um, in this paper. And I'm just going to give you an idea of what, what, how we model consumption, post-disaster consumption through time. So we start with an initial level um, of consumption, which includes kind of income adjusted for how much rate, uh, mortgage and rent you have to pay, and any income from your job, income from investments, etc. And then we consider 
a few factors post-disaster. First is the loss of your labor income, so your job. Uh, second is the loss of your housing services. So if you either um, lose your income from rent or whether you actually have to go and temporarily relocate from the loss of housing services. And of course, your liability for reconstruction costs will affect your consumption. But also you can kind of make it up by using um, the savings. And ultimately, what we end up with is uh, pre-disaster consumption that drops as a result of all these changes and slowly recovers as we have the economy recover, as we have repair of housing and reconstruction, um, reconstruction of housing and the use of savings. And the rate of recovery is actually constrained by several things. One, of course, the time it takes to reconstruct different aspects of the economy or your housing, but also people's, um, we, we maximize their utility. So they actually have a choice um, of the rate at which they reconstruct because some of the money will have to go to reconstruction costs and that will be foregone for the consumption. So there's that like decision-making aspect that is also implicitly in the model. Okay, but then given this model that we've constructed for household consumption, how do we actually take our analysis and fill out these different parts? And the kind of things that have to do with the housing and reconstruction, uh, we look at the seismic risk analysis to quantify a lot of these losses and repair times. But for the loss of labor, we will need to look at decrease in productivity of industries and unemployment in the overall Bay Area economy. So that will require some economic modeling. And just a brief uh, overview of what is considered in the economic model. Um, ultimately, the way that we look at um, the impacts, economic impacts, is through decrease and increase in production through several mechanisms across different sectors. These are the 15 sectors that I mentioned. Um, and the production might decrease because your assets, productive assets, are actually destroyed. They can decrease because now there's less demand for your uh, commodity or service because another industry might be affected. Um, and you might also have supply constraints, so input constraints. Or your production can actually increase because there is an increased demand due to reconstruction. Um, or you can kind of have some adaptive increase in production after a disaster. And so we've used an existing um, adaptive regional input output model by Stefan Halligat to capture um, these sector dynamics and interdependency. And ultimately we will be looking at the change in value added, or uh, you can think of it as the GDP um, or gross product of different sectors. And that will be our metric for this indirect loss. And there's a whole uh, slew of results I can present on this, but I'm not gonna get into more details because I wanna focus on the other part. But one thing from this graph, you can notice these are the 15 different sectors and in blue are the asset losses within that sector and in red are value added losses, which have all these economic dynamics. And you can notice that the, the red make up 
kind of a large portion of some of these asset losses, where in general you have 30% um, of the asset losses make up the value added losses. And in four sectors, they actually are greater than the asset losses. And a lot of these are service sectors, which are impacted um, down the line from the damages. So taking these, um, these results on the economy, we can now look at the decrease in wages and kind of have an idea of how employment might be affected across different um, different sectors, because value added is mostly made up of wages, taxes, and profits. And so it's really this wage aspect that allows us to look at lost income uh, per capita across different industries. So from using this analysis, um, on average, we have about uh, 36,000 employee years are lost in the process of recovery. But the income losses actually make up 23% of housing asset losses. So these are the repair costs. So this is a substantial amount of losses that we want to be also considering as we look at the recovery. And this is just the distribution um, of income losses that we get for the scenario. So then putting all of this together, uh, we end up we end up being able to track this different metric, which is consumption losses. And this is just one simulation. We have a lot of simulations, um, a thousand simulations of these, but you're going to see a little video where um, essentially we're going to have, this is the overall economy, the value added, how it changes um, as we go five years into the earthquake. And in red, you're going to see decrease in consumption for different census tracts. Um, and in blue is actually increasing consumption, and this can happen when the economy goes um, in overdrive. So let's see if I can start the video. And so we kind of, for this specific simulation, we see that there's initial shock, and then as time goes on, different areas recover I think that was cut prematurely, but different areas recover at um, different paces. And then over by three, four years, we're kind of um, coming back to pre-disaster level of value added. And this analysis has been done at a census tract level because that's the level of data which we had. All right, so this is one way. And now if we integrate these consumption losses over time, we can get a, a sense of consumption losses of different households. And so the, I think this gets us to now the recovery part and trying to understand that. But it's still, if we think back, are we still reflecting the disparities associated with disasters? Um, because let's say we quantify that over the recovery period, a household might have $10,000 in consumption loss. But again, intuitively, we understand that for this household, it will be experienced very differently than this type of a household. So we need to think a little bit further. And this gets us to these other impact metrics, which we can introduce to start thinking about that disparity and putting it on a um, similar playing field. And so this is the last part of the piece, piece of the puzzle, 
that I'm going to talk about um, that considers pre-disaster income distribution and something known as marginal utility of consumption to quantify um, well-being losses. So again, intuitively we understand that that $10,000 loss will be experienced very differently by a wealthy versus a poor um, household. So to consider that, we introduce a metric, uh, a more equitable metric, which we call the well-being losses. And they are based on consumption losses, but there is one, um, one additional step to it, is that these consumption losses are weighted for each household based on their value of consumption or the utility of that consumption. Um, and this is a concept that is widely used in welfare economics. And essentially, we, we use these kind of curves where as the consumption, you can think of it, one proxy for it could be income, for example. But as the consumption increases, um, the utility increases, but it increases at a very different rate where for lower consumption level, initial level, your utility of consuming an additional dollar will be much higher than if you were, let's say, a wealthy household. And this now starts to reflect that difference in value or utility of that extra dollar of that marginal um, consumption. And so we use the, this concept of utility of or value of consumption to then look at that utility over time, utility of consumption and the recovery throughout time, and that loss in utility is what we're going to call well-being losses. And just to illustrate how this might be used, let's say we have a certain that $10,000 loss in consumption, and for a higher income household, this will represent one loss of well-being. But for a lower income household, this will represent a very different loss in well-being. And ultimately, what we're going to do is um, somehow use this well-being consumption equivalent losses, these well-being losses, to represent um, that loss in consumption, but considering the utility of consumption. And so as a result, doing this transformation, we can now uh, morph fairly compare the different household. And as a result, one dollar of well-being loss in this, um, in this case will mean the same for wealthy versus a poor household, because now we've considered that utility or that value. And so what do our results look like if we consider well-being asset losses? You have to remember that well-being losses aren't exactly the dollar value of consumption. They have this transformation in them. Uh, but I think we need, if we look at the relative picture of what well-being losses look like, their distribution to housing asset losses, it starts to look quite differently because now it looks at the recovery, it looks at the income loss in addition to asset losses, but also it looks at this, um, that's utility of the loss. And we're starting to see that, for example, Contra Costa and areas around Concord starts to be highlighted. And a lot of it does now have to do, is correlated with that income per capita, where we see here um, in darker blue is lower income per capita, and it is corresponding to the well-being losses. So what, is, what do these results mean? Well, they mean a few different things. First is that 
the ranking um, now becomes the ranking of consequences can be very different if we use two different impact metrics. For example, this um, chart is ranked the top uh, 10 largest cities in the Bay Area are ranked by housing asset losses. Um, and then in, I don't know, let me see the pointer again. There we go. In dark gray. And then light gray are the well-being losses. So these are the ones that consider um, consider all these aspects. And you can see that the ranking now starts being different than the ranking that we look at when we look at housing asset losses. And then you can further look at, for example, two cities like uh, Berkeley and Hayward, who from this analysis, they have similar housing asset losses and similar income losses. But in Hayward, the well-being losses are much greater. And this, again, comes back to Hayward on average having less savings per capita um, and also much lower income per capita. So you're starting to now see these other aspects being integrated in the results. And I think this was one very interesting result um, that we kind of had this idea that these are results we might anticipate coming into this analysis um, that we confirmed. And one is when we look at the asset losses across different income uh, quartiles, the asset losses increase with higher income and where 35% of asset losses are in the richest quartile. And this makes sense because a wealthy household by definition has more assets. So they have more assets to lose. So this is not a surprising picture um, that we get if we look at distribution of asset losses across different income groups. So from this, we might conclude that the highest income group is most affected, and it is in terms of asset losses. Now, if we look at well-being losses, the picture becomes completely different. We actually have the opposite um, effect where 41% of losses, well-being losses are in the lowest income uh, category. And so this, this now starts being a proxy for maybe the recovery part and how the household might actually experience um, the disaster consequences. So the last part, um, I want to be conscious of time, but the last part of this is looking, starting to look at evaluating policies with different impact metrics. And I think this is just the beginning of the work. Um, and there's a lot more we can do in this aspect. So, but I just wanted to show you some of our thoughts on this. And bear with me, be patient as I try to explain what, what we have done. So one benefit of well-being losses is that we can now, unlike asset losses, we can measure the efficacy of policies that don't have to do, that are post-disaster risk management strategies, that improve the recovery. Whereas if we look at asset losses, it would be impossible to track. And so... We've compared kind of the difference of several policies to a baseline scenario. The first one is decreased uh, building vulnerability, considering current building code. The baseline is current building code, property insurance at 13%, and also the current unemployment insurance, well, uh, the pre-COVID, uh, which is half a year coverage for California, ranging per week, depending on your income. 
So this is the baseline. Now we compare the results here with kind of a counterfactual assessment. Well, how effective are the current policies? Okay, so we consider what would be the difference if there was no building code um, improvement. And for that, we just considered kind of the 1975 building standards. What if our building stock was all that um, from, from those standards? Uh, what is, we had no property insurance um, and what if there was no unemployment insurance? What would be the increase in losses? And, and then on the other side, kind of what if we enhance from the baseline and retrofit multifamily apartment buildings um, increase property insurance penetration and extend the unemployment insurance. Bear in mind that this is not a cost benefit analysis and we're not looking at these as alternatives, but more how will using different metrics might change the, the story that is told or the efficacy of different policies. So I'll, I'll explain how to read these charts. So at zero, we have kind of the baseline and to the left, will be counterfactual policies. So how, um, how effective, if we didn't have that code improvement, how much um, more losses will we have? If we don't have that 13% insurance penetration, what would be the losses? Okay, that's how you read it. And to the right in a second, I'll show what if we enhance the, that, um, the policies, the strategies. And so, Again, looking at reduced building vulnerability, property insurance, and unemployment insurance. And at first, we're just going to look at housing assets. So we see that that uh, building code improvement reduced uh, the asset losses in this model by 15%, um, the liability. And so insurance helps kind of the households be liable for um, about 8% less, um, less losses. And unemployment insurance has no effect because it is not reflected in the housing asset losses. And so, and also we see that kind of further um, enhancing that the, having a retrofit ordinance would improve, would further decrease asset losses and having insurance penetration at 40% would actually make a, quite a big difference in terms of reducing that liability uh, of housing asset losses. So non-insured housing asset losses. So from this from this setup, we see that increasing insurance penetration in this case is mo uh, more effective than a new retrofit ordinance. Um, this is not like a conclusion to draw from the paper, but I think for with the setup, this is our result. But now let's think about the well-being losses and look at um, let's just look at this enhanced kind of enhanced policies. So now the retrofit actually becomes, reduces the well-being losses relatively by more than insurance penetration. And now we're also starting to see the effects of this unemployment insurance. And the reason for this is because well-being losses now capture um, that recovery period. So people won't have to, um, by retrofitting, they won't have to move out and kind of do that repair work. It also considers the renters who are part of the equation. Um, and that so that recovery puzzle piece is now considered in the benefits or the reduction of losses. Um, and also we're able now to see the effects of unemployment insurance. And so this 
I think this work was very interesting for us. And um, last last part that I'd like to talk about is actually when COVID started happening, um, the researchers who I did this work with, with, we said, well, can we think about adapting this uh, model to look at actually modeling the impacts of COVID on the consumption um, from different employment losses? And so a lot of this work was done in May 2020 at the early onset. So a lot of our assumptions, I think, um, are non-relevant, non but I just wanted to show how these frameworks can be adopted for different um, hazards or different disasters. So our objective was really to evaluate the effect of uh, COVID-19, but also unemployment insurance and government aid on household consumption. And we have reframed the model um, a little bit because now uh, we don't have any more physical asset losses, but more employment losses. And we've defined this crisis phase where people lose their jobs and then the recovery phase where they're coming, uh, where they're gaining employment, but they have depleted their savings um, and they need to kind of make up their to pre-disaster levels. This is idealized assumption, uh, but this is kind of the, our, our construction of the model. So the, the people really rely on their savings to keep up that level of consumption and then also federal assistance and uh, state unemployment insurance. And so this was adapted from the earthquake model. And as I mentioned, the households try to sustain that consumption uh, by using savings and other uh, mechanisms, funding mechanisms that they have. And we've used a similar categorization of the economy where the different sectors were affected differently um, based on whether they were essential and non-essential, and based on other data that we had at the time, we've made some assumptions about what are the different industries and what is their unemployment, where, for example, the service industries, entertainment, recreation, were one of the highest affected. And then ultimately, um, for, this, for this study, we considered a different crisis period, but a lot of the results I'll show were assumed to be three months um, unemployment period. This has now should be revised, but getting back to this idea of looking at looking at metrics and looking at consumption as a proxy for disaster impacts. So um, we've looked at kind of the this graph shows a consumption per capita per month um, and the different households that exist in the Bay Area. The black outline is the initial and the red is kind of what happens if there is no aid. Um, and in general, the consumption drops and a lot of the households now become below um, deep poverty or poverty levels, uh, where the deep poverty increases by 8% and the poverty level uh, by 9% from kind of the pre-COVID. And then we, so then we implemented um, the federal aid and the unemployment insurance and we see that this is quite an effective way to help um, the consumption, assuming that three months was the unemployment period. Um, and it help, greatly helps reduce the poverty rates. And so in a similar fashion, while we didn't look at well-being losses, um, there was just too many things to look at besides well-being losses, but even looking at 
consumption losses across the income groups, where in red, you have percent consumption losses kind of without aid, um, and with blue with aid, uh, we see that consumption losses decrease the most in the lowest income quantile, and the aid is greatly, is really helpful, um, does help those, those households. And then if we look at the also the recovery time, so that's that time to replenish savings to a pre-disaster level, um, then the recovery time is also really helped by this um, by this aid. So that's that's that was our work in trying to bring this idea of consumption losses to evaluate the different policy uh, policy levels and how they impact different income groups. So I think this was a lot to pack in, um, but I would like to have some key takeaways from this work that maybe we could discuss. So the first one is that the choice of disaster impact metrics matters. And the metrics that we choose will dictate the result, a lot of the results that we will have, and a lot of the times our interpretation of them. And so we saw that asset losses, consumption, and well-being losses, they all might lead to a different conclusion. And it really depends on who, who is doing the risk assessment and what is their goal in the choice of the metric. Well, for an insurance industry, asset losses might be a perfectly um, relevant metric. But if we're talking about reducing the impact on, um, on the people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged, that might not be the best metric. So we need to think about that. And we've kind of confirmed, but we know that, that earthquakes and other disasters have disparate effects across different socioeconomic and demographic uh, groups, and we need to be able to reflect that in our assessment. So it is crucial in the work that we do to examine that in one, one way or another, even if it's not looking at well-being losses, but always asking this question, what is that differential impact of disasters? And currently we're teaching um, a class on seismic risk analysis, regional seismic risk analysis at Stanford. And we encourage our students in all their projects to really, really ask that question. Who is it affecting? Like dissecting this, who do the disasters affect? Who are those households? What is their experience gonna be like? And start thinking about that a little bit more because that will really matter once we start evaluating risk management strategies and policies, we need to be acknowledging that not everybody's affected the same way. Um, and lastly, I think as scientists, researchers, and educators in this field of natural hazard and disaster risk, we always have to come back to our purpose of our work, and it's to help, whether it's understand or mad, uh, manage disaster consequences. And I think we're in the field that prides ourselves in helping the people in need before and after disaster. So who are those people in need and are we achieving our goals uh, with the tools and the knowledge that we put out there? So these are some of my thoughts um, from, from this work that I've been doing over the last five or six years. And I'm happy to discuss and I welcome any questions from you. Thank you. Thank you, Maria, for your presentation. So now we have time for a few questions. And so if you have questions for the speaker, you can either put them into chat and I can read them out loud or 
like Michael, you can raise your hand to ask them in person. So, um, Andrew, would you like to raise your hand and ask a question? Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks. That was a really fantastic uh, talk, Ria. Um, actually, in contrast, uh, I think last week at a FEMA workshop, someone just said we really just need to think about counting, you know, houses instead of you know economic loss. And and clearly, what you've done is far more informative than than doing that. I guess the question I have is really related to that last point of are we doing the right things? And I was wondering if as you went through starting with the seismic modeling, do you see things that were unknowns or uncertain um, back at the first stage of what we do, the earthquake part of it, the, the, the natural hazard part of it that is creating uncertainty in your analysis that we could maybe do better? Oh, so. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think one thing that we've confirmed with a lot of this modeling is that for earthquakes, the uncertainty of the results is very high, starting with the hazard part, of course, and this uncertainty propagates. And I didn't touch upon this very much um, in, in the presentation, and this uncertainty really propagates in the in all aspects of the model and the economic model you have times where your economy fails completely or um, you know for the same scenario simulations where your economy is is fine and that of course builds on with every aspect of the model so which steps of the model to consider uncertainty i mean i think a lot of them matter um and we I would encourage all of us to continue doing that work on getting better results. But one thing that is absolutely kind of a missing part, and I'm not sure where our part of it comes in, but is tying in these other aspects. So the demographic aspects, the savings, a lot of this other data that we might not think about that helps in these models um, into our models. So getting them the same scale, getting them to work together, and I know that the um, Sim Center and like a lot of the researchers right now are looking at this idea of exposure modeling, but not only constraining it to the building, but also who lives in that building. Um, because even having that as simple as that information allows you to analyze our results in so many different ways. But we just don't have that link quite yet. And I think we're starting to make it. Um, but even for us to do the analysis, I had to do a lot of approximations and having to consider um, the household as a census tract. And that just masks so many things in there because within the census tract, like block to block, you're going to have really different results and really different people who need, uh, for whom, you know, earthquakes will mean a very different thing. So I think that level of resolution at the different modeling stages uh, would be very helpful to then understand and interpret these results. Thanks, that's, really, that's a really good point. Actually, I know I live in a very um, economically diverse little part of, of Half Moon Bay where you know, the income ranges are, are vast and impacts will be different. I actually had one other quick question. Um, in your animation, there was some something interesting going on in sort of the Tamales Bay Point Reyes area where the losses got deeper for a while, sort of on the edge of the area while everyone else was starting to recover. Do you know what was going on there? I think if, uh, you know, I'd have to probe a little, but that um, 
kind of northern area, there was some aspect of um, the type of employment that is there. I I can't tell you right now, but the the parts that were kind of um, that seemed to be unusual and maybe delayed or kind of not synced had to do with the economic activity and the vitality and that uh, the sector kind of vitality. And we don't, in this model, we don't connect very well the spatial economic aspect. Like we look at what kind of occupations are within a certain census tract, but um, there's better models out there to say, okay, where do they actually work? And, you know, that aspect of the spatial aspect of employment um, is something that could definitely be improved in our model. Because we look at it as the overall economy of the Bay Area, but not getting into details of how that productivity is impacted, um, you know, maybe in different neighborhoods. So that's uh, definitely one limitation and work that uh, the economic model on the economic model side, that would be an improvement. Okay, thank you. All right, Anne has her hand up. And then we have a question in chat. Oh, yeah. Just following on from Andy's question, um, Maria, do you have a sense of sort of the relative effects of the uncertainties and the hazard engineering and economic components of the modeling? Like if we were to work, which, which, which part needs the most work? This is a very, very good question. Um, so there's two, two kind of, answers I have. I've actually did a, this is not part of this study, but we did a study on epistemic uncertainty of, of different parts of the risk assessment. And so there's, you know, the aleatory uncertainty or the inherent uncertainty currently, of course, is driven by the hazard um, in a current. So all the, almost all the uncertainty you're seeing in the results comes from that hazard uncertainty, but I would say it's because we also have kind of better, better models in the sense that we characterize that uncertainty in the hazard. Like we're saying, we understand for now, this is our limitation, but here is the range. Now that doesn't mean that the uncertainty doesn't exist in other parts, but we might not be capturing it. Like we're not necessarily capturing, at least not in this study, the uncertainty associated with the exposure. So uh, we're not like sampling the different types of buildings and all the epistemic uncertainty in there. So in terms of the uncertainty that we do have, it is hazard. That doesn't say, um, I think, much about where should we be investing our time in what data to get, because we're not capturing a lot of the uncertainty in both the economic model in the you know exposure model, the damage model to a certain extent through the fragility models, um, but a lot of it is still is still unknown. Um, so that's my kind of answer that I have having worked with this um, with this data. Thanks. All right, we have a question from Joe uh, Toland in the chat. How do you connect the well-being index with the differential amounts of resource allocation and practice? This is um, a really good question, and I think we are 
we are just starting to uh, work in that direction. But so Stefan, who is a co-author on this work, uh, who works at the World Bank, he's done some of this analysis in both the Philippines and Sri Lanka at, at the province level. And I think a lot of these um, have been presented to the government. It was done for the government and presented a, a lot less detail, like a much more simplified version than this. But, but to show prioritization of interventions and, and funding, essentially. So I don't know exactly how they were allocated, but the government was actually interested because they recognized that, um, you know, if, if they were to do it just by losses, they would allocate everything to the central area. I'm not as familiar with the geography there. But then when you look at well-being losses, a lot of other, you know, areas are highlighted. And through that, they were trying to do their resource allocation and planning also based on that. Um, so I think this would be a really interesting work to see and to also say, well, what if we were to assign a different resource allocation uh, scheme based on different impact metrics? What will that lead to our results? And are these results acceptable? Is it okay for us to have less asset losses uh, or more asset losses and less well-being losses? And then we would have to, again, I think dive back into looking at it by different incomes and think, well, will these people be able to manage okay, even though they might might have higher losses than the people at the lower end of the income. Um, and this comes back to equity, that not everybody needs the same level of support. They have different starts, so they need different levels of support. And we, um, But I think you, everybody will relate here that we are we are starting to think about this and consider this. I think we're just at the beginning of starting to use this in decision-making. I see David uh, has his hand up. He, yeah, thanks. Oh, this is this is really great work. I love to see this. Um, and I, I like the way you spread the, um, or compared building code and insurance and, and uh, unemployment insurance, comparing those to the well-being loss. My question is, it seems like insurance or homeowners insurance is kind of an inequitable solution in that it's affecting mostly the wealthy or the affluent homeowners rather than renters. And I'm, I'm assuming that renters insurance for earthquakes pretty much non-existent. I'm not sure about that, but how come that shows up so well in the well-being um, component when you would think it was really geared towards only homeowners uh, in a relatively affluent way? Right. Well, there, there's kind of a few thoughts about that. One is that actually what this model is missing, and because we have very little data on this, is the correlation between income and insurance. So it's not, um, there is, there's very little information at the time when I was doing a study, hopefully it's improved, about insurance penetration in general. And I think maybe uh, a lot of I was surprised to not be able to find that information better for earthquake insurance penetration. So the model right now doesn't consider the fact that um, places with higher income, higher homeowners um, place will have will have higher insurance penetration. So it's kind of spread out uniformly 
So you're seeing that uniform. And this goes back to the, one of the first questions, what can we do better? Well, we need a lot of this like demographic data and resource data to include it in the model. So unfortunately, that's like a whole separate part that we discuss in the appendix of we're not right now we have that limitation but i think if you were to assign it more kind of to the areas with higher uh, homeowners and not just assume 13 percent across each census tract uh, where the homeowners are uh, you would you would really see that drop that well-being effect drop thanks that makes a lot of sense thank you for that and i think we have time for one more question from keith in the chat uh he wants to know if you have, might have some thoughts on some uh, what the biggest return on investment might be in reducing risk based upon your modeling. I'm uh, going to answer that no, I don't have the thought uh, because we've just not looked at enough, I think, a more comprehensive uh, policy assessment. And you really need to I think in comparing them, you really need to consider the cost because I say retrofit buildings, but I mean, there's so many, it's so much that goes into that decision um, alone. But what I can say is that I would love to see um, this model being extended to some of the non kind of hard measures. So some of them maybe funding, post-disaster funding measures. And we saw that a little bit in the COVID. So if we kind of looked at, you know, I, what I would do is in, instead of maybe comparing the measures, because it's very hard to get that exhaustive cost comparison, looking at like bundles of measures or different scenarios, like, well, and, and these, a lot of these scenarios can be risk-based. They can be the policies are created partially on risk, but partially on our understanding, partially on policy priorities. And so I think it would be very good to use this to evaluate a set of um, policies or priorities that are already in place that we know work. But now, like, how do we, given the cost, do we want to invest that extra money to, you know, and what will we achieve? So I think for answering that, um, this model would work quite well for answering questions like looking at all different types of mitigation that would be a little bit difficult just because they can be so many and so many different aspects all right thank you i think that's all the questions we have and i know we've gone over a little bit on time so i would like to thank you for giving this great talk and for your presentation and we'd like to conclude the formal seminar here and the recording uh, and unfortunately, uh, Maria cannot stay for further questions afterwards. Uh, but if, I do encourage everyone, if you do have more questions, you can reach out to her. Uh, that would be great. So thank you, everyone. Thank you.